Listen, players. <laughs> You're listening to the Movement, Strength and Play podcast by the School of Calisthenics. Here are your hosts, Tim and Jacko. We're super excited to welcome Mr. Patrick McCone back onto the podcast. He's come on and this is his second little visit. Uh, the first time we talked a lot around his first book, Oxygen Advantage. And this time we're taking a little bit more of a deep dive into a second follow-up book, The Breathing Cure. But we also get a little bit broader and wider than this one. I really enjoyed this conversation with Patrick. Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably nothing within The Breathing Cure that... Um, that isn't covered around uh, around how breathing can change all sorts of different things, um, but also he's uh, he gives us a little bit of a sneak preview of what's coming next around this uh, this um, focus and attention, and and that was something that uh, I know Tim that you've been talking a lot about and engaging a lot with people that have listened to some of the podcasts and stuff I've been doing. I've trained with Patrick, like they know uh, that my little man crush on him. So this is one that obviously. Uh, uh, I got very, very, very excited about. So if I'm speaking too fast, then you can drop me down to like a, a 0.5 on your uh, when you're listening back. Because that tends to happen whenever uh, whenever I get to speak to Patrick. I would say to people as well, if, you, if you've listened to some of Patrick's work, you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I want to, if this is a podcast for me. We actually, I would say that a large proportion of this is not actually about breath work at all, Jacko, really. We, we do talk a lot about it to a point, but there's also, there's so much in this where we actually kind of went off talking, as you say, about concentration and the world that we live in and, and trying to optimise our productivity and, and focus and attention, which I think is such an important conversation to have. And that, of course, all links back into the breath, but it's um, it was a great to have a broader kind of discussion yeah. with Patrick. It wasn't sort of like, Start it, yeah. It wasn't like starting yeah. with breath, and this is it was, yeah. Uh, it's that those it's all interlinked in because how we're thinking can affect our breathing, our breathing can affect how we're thinking, and all that. So, yeah, no, now, as as a remember, it's a fairly long one, um, so we'll keep this short and we'll just crack straight into it. But if you're looking for some help with your calisthenics training, you can get on board with Jacko and I at the virtual classroom, our online training programs. You can hang out with Georgie, Seth, Owen, all the guys are in there, all of our expert coaching team with years of experience in the industry and really take pride in the, delivering the highest quality tuition that we can to help you with your calisthenics and bodyweight training goals. So you can find all the details at classroom.schoolofcalisthenics.com and uh, come have a little look around. Seven days free to try the programs out see if you like them and if you do then we'd love you to stay and uh, we can help you try to redefine your impossible and i know for a fact tim everyone likes a freebie and the other fact i know is i know there's a lot of people a ton of people thousands of people that listen to this podcast and have yet still have always have thought oh yeah i will but never got round to actually checking out what the programs and training is like within the virtual classroom and if that's you maybe this week is the week that you get on board and try out that seven day free trial you won't be disappointed <laughs> All right, you won't be disappointed with this podcast either. So sit back and enjoy Mr. Patrick McCone on the School of Calisthenics podcast, now known as the Movement Strength and Play. <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> he's got Roll that jingle. So, Patrick McEwen, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks very much. Good, Jacko, good. Getting a bit frustrated with technology, but other than that, it's all going well. <laughs> We're in there. This is about the fourth time we've done the intro, but um, for, for for those listening, this is going to be the first time you've obviously heard it say, so Patrick, um, has, it was a welcome back because he's been on the podcast previously. That was podcast 121. It was it was when we were called the Schoolcast Thanks Podcast. We've uh, obviously since then rebranded to the Movement, Strength and Play podcast because we're talking about all sorts of other things as well as uh, calisthenics and training. And obviously... Um, uh, if you haven't come across Patrick's work within the breath world and um, breath work, um, check out podcast 121, where we talk about uh, his previous book, The Oxygen Advantage, and that whole training uh, system that um, is geared towards a sort of athletic performance. Obviously, it, uh, a lot of you listeners are, have been very interested in the back about that he has a new book out now called the breathing cure and we were going to kick off uh, patrick with just trying to give us if people you know go back and listen to a podcast 121 if you if you haven't come across patrick's work yet where have you been if you haven't come across it yet as well um but uh what's uh what was the what was the driver behind uh the new book the breathing cure and and, and how is it it different to um, the Oxford Vantage, um, you know, having read it myself, you know, no, it, it, it's building on top. It's not saying that what was what you'd put in the Oxford Vantage was wrong. It's going, this is some additional stuff on top. But, you know, what was the what was the thinking process and what are some of those differences that have been added in? 
the, the oxygen advantage was very much focused on sports performance. So, you know, the information is very relevant for people who want to do physical exercise. And it talks about the zone and it talks about anxiety and, you know, but it's very much, it's very much a performance focused book. There is chapters in, in terms of craniofacial growth for children, mm. but with the view of them, you know, what's the ideal facial structure and airway that you would be a good athlete. The breathing cure is looking at topics that I, in some ways I had avoided and topics that really need to get a lot of attention, but haven't. And I suppose one of the most important topics there was female breathing, because it's very different to male breathing. This has been written about since 1905, and very few people were talking about it, and I wasn't talking about it. So I put in a couple of chapters for females, and younger females, especially during the monthly cycle, we have to bear in mind that days 10 to days 22, there's an increase in the hormone progesterone, which is a respiratory stimulant. Carbon dioxide levels can drop by 25%. This can increase pain perception, reduce pain thresholds, can contribute to fatigue and anxiety, faster breathing. And there's other, there's other aspects as well. Functional movement, the relationship between functional breathing and functional movement. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, very much there's an emphasis on, especially in strength and conditioning, on core strength, etc., functional movement but there's not so much attention paid to functional breathing. And you can't have functional movement unless you have functional breathing. Sleep disorder breathing is another one because that affects all walks of life from a young child right up to you know an older person. And that's including insomnia, snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. So I put a lot of information on that because that was something that had, had bothered me for many, many years. And I remember going to school and going to university and you're, you're trying to focus and you're trying to concentrate and you're trying to remember material. But if you don't have good quality sleep, you're not going to have good concentration. Mm. And I really feel that there's something missing in this jacko. Society is demanding that we can concentrate. Society is demanding that we have a decent attention span and that we are able to focus. And it's for school, it's for university, it's for the workplace, and it's even for family life. But nobody is teaching us how. Mm. And putting kids through school and university and not giving them the tools to be able to narrow their focus, and especially now today, given the distractions with modern technology, people now, it's very common that they can't even deal with boredom. As soon as they have one or two minutes of quiet time, of downtime, they have to fill it. They have to open up the phone and start scrolling and looking at, you know, crap information <laughs> that has absolutely no relevance and it's overstimulating us. And, you know, so that's one aspect. I'm currently writing a book on that topic, by the way. That's why it's fresh in my mind. Ah, okay. And the, the topic is going to be on focus. Yeah. And then, you know, it's bringing in together our concentration, which is our ability to hold our attention on one thing and attention span which is the length of time that we can hold our attention on one thing. And focus then is narrowing our attention to one thing. And really it's a recipe for success because you cannot produce a good quality of work unless you have concentration, unless you have attention span, and unless you have focus. And even for success, if people, you know, if it was material success, if people want that. I was listening to an interview with Warren Buffett and he was talking, I think it was CNBC News, and he spoke about a dinner party that 20 people were attending and Warren Buffett was there with Bill Gates. And I think it was Bill Gates' father came in and he said, he said to everybody present at the dinner table, he said, he said, what's the one word that you would attribute your success to? And Warren Buffett wrote down a word and Bill Gates wrote down a word and neither of them had known what the other wrote down. But both of them wrote down one word and that one word was focus. So, you know, it's really, really important. And breathing plays a role here. So in the new book, in The Breathing Cure, there's a chapter on heart rate variability. And, you know, it's really, I suppose, heart rate variability is getting a lot more attention, even though it's been around for 30 years. But military are using a lot of technology and elite athletes, and they're using Garmin watches and Aura rings and whoop bands and elite HRV Heart mat and M Wave Pro and all of these. Yeah, the new iPhone watch gives you a heart rate. The, the new the iPhone watch gives you a 
um, or Apple Watch, whatever it's called, well. gives you. I haven't got one, but yeah, I've seen people have been saying that it's giving them, and they're, and they're noticing that their heart rate variability is improving when they when they focus on their breathing. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure, because the watch, I suppose, and all of the technology is showing you a measurement. But the real question is, how do you improve your HRV? How do you optimize it? And I suppose the other question is, you know, people probably don't realize the implications of HRV, but it's a clinical measure, clinical and objective measure of stress in the human body. It's a measure of vagal tone. So, for example, if you have somebody who's very stressed out in their work, they, they don't really know how to quantify the impact that that stress is having on the body. And if they go to their doctor and if they tell their doctor, doctor, I'm feeling highly stressed, mm. the doctor is probably just looking at them. And, you know, the doctor has no way of quantifying it unless the doctor was to measure heart rate variability. So we can improve heart rate variability because there's a time to train and there's a time to rest. And we, we as human beings, we need to be able to switch off and many people now are overstimulated. They cannot switch off. They're having poor sleep. Their, their concentration is dwindling. Their mind is racing. They're bombarded with thought. How can we help to improve potential if you cannot place your attention on what you want to place it upon? So yeah, the new book is focusing on a lot of those topics. And currently that's, that's my area of focus now is to bring breathing away from tree huggers because I think tree huggers have kind of embraced breathing for far too long. And in the main, many of them have made a mess of it, telling people to take deep breaths and big breaths. And that's the worst thing possible that you could do. And I remember going to do an exam 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And three minutes before the exam, I was a bit nervous going in. And I took a walk. And during that walk, I took these big full breaths, the sort of breathing that you see on YouTube. I went in on YouTube this morning. And I just was curious in some yoga instructors, well, how are they instructing breathing? And just a couple of them, I went in and I said, can I hear people breathe during this instruction? And the answer is, of course I could. And if you can hear people breathe during rest, that can indicate that they are breathing too much air. And breathing too much air is going to cause blood vessels to constrict and less oxygen to be delivered. So with my walk, three minute walk, I took big full breaths, and I walked into the exam hall absolutely spaced out and lightheaded. Now, we need to turn breathing upside down. And people who are teaching breathing, it's very important that they have a basic understanding of the physiology of what's going on. Because if we're telling students what to do in terms of the breath, we could cause as much harm as help if we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was something... Um... Something you touched on um, in the that, that that comes across a lot within the Oxford Vantage um, about breath holding and, and using that to to help improve the, the the biochemistry that's going on. And there was there was just something I'd noticed recently around having practiced on myself and then been doing some work with some professional rugby players where that focus and that concentration to do simple tasks like counting how many steps you're doing during a breath hold um, as yeah that gets challenging, the cognitive demand to be able to, you know, I know you were talking about focus and concentration just in general rather than just having a racing mind, but equally there's been uh, there's been some, um, I've experienced some interesting stuff around focus and concentration under that sort of fatigue that you might get in a, um, in a game or in a sport where you make a mistake because you're struggling with the cognitive demand or something under that fatigue and that you almost get yeah. to train that a little bit with some of those breath holding is, is that breath holding side of things still an important aspect um, from what you see now? Uh, or is that something that you keep a little bit more for the sports performance sort of world or side of things? No, I think it's got relevance to everybody. You know, even if I was to give a public talk and it was to a large group of people, you, you want to access a flow state. You want to be in a state of mind whereby you're relaxed and you're alert at the same time. So normally what I would do, even before any large, not before a podcast, because, you know, the kind of second nature, um, but talking to a large audience without a PowerPoint presentation, you're talking off the cuff, maybe for one, two or even three hours. And the best way to talk in that state is, is true flow that you're, you're in a state of effortless attention. 
and that your your attention is moving simultaneously with time, that you're not stuck in your head. And you can imagine a rugby player that's playing a game and they're stuck in their head. They don't even have attention on the game. Or somebody says the wrong thing to them or they screw up somewhere and they're carrying that for the rest of the game that messes the, net, the rest of the game up. It's just as important to train the mind. And while a lot of people are talking about training the mind, more important is the experience of it. So using breath holds we can have to improve blood flow to the brain. That can have a calming effect on the brain. We can also then slow down the exhalation, which in turn stimulates the vagus nerve and it secretes the neurotransmitter acetylcholine and that can help with recovery. So there's a number of different techniques if we want to upregulate or if we want to downregulate. So what I would do for a public talk is that I would sit down typically for about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, close eyes, slow down breathing and breathe less air to the point of air hunger. And that's stimulating the vagus nerve. I've increased watery slive in the mouth. It's activating the body's relaxation response. But I don't want to go out into a talk too relaxed. So then I do a couple of easy breath holds. And then I do four or five strong breath holds to stress the body. So this is the one thing about breathing, that it's just knowing what tools and when to use mm. them. And we use those as well, similar enough for, for athletes warming up. You know, you can have athletes with pre-match anxiety bring breathing exercises into the warm-up, get them into the flow state early on in the game and use four or five strong breath holds before they go out because you have spleen contraction. So this is the thing about breathing, Jacko. We carry it with us. And the whole, like, we have to bear in mind that people have no time now. But coming back to what you think, what you said about attention, it's really phenomenal now. And I know there was a study that was commissioned by Microsoft, and I'm not sure. I haven't been able to find out what, what journal it was published in, but it was discussed in Time magazine and all of these various magazines. They looked at attention span and a, number, a few thousand Canadians. And in 2002, they concluded that the attention span of the Westerner was 12 seconds. And they did a similar follow-up study in 2012. And they concluded that the attention span was now eight seconds. So in the space of 10 years, attention span has dropped by 25%. And they said this is a problem because a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. So if you put in goldfish study, and people can kind of get an idea of their attention span. If they were just to sit down for three minutes and just focus on the airflow coming in and out of the nose, so, for example, if they have pen and paper beside them, they have their mouth closed and they're, they're following the slightly colder air coming into the nose and the slightly warmer air leaving the nose and the slightly colder air coming into the nose and the slightly warmer air leaving the nose. And every time their mind wanders is to mark a tick on the piece of paper beside them. So in the space of three minutes, how many times has the mind wandered? And you'll find that some people's minds have wandered a lot that they don't even have the ability to hold their attention on their breathing for three minutes. Now, if you cannot hold your attention on your breath, you can't hold your attention on any subject matter or task or sports. And it's very important, not just for performance and success and results, but for happiness, because people's minds who wander the most are least happy. The person who's stuck in their head with racing thoughts that cannot get out of their head, they're living in their head, and how can you live life if you're stuck in your head? Mm -hmm. If you're stuck in your head, you miss out on a lot. And when you start moving from your mind into present moment, and I know present moment is bandied about, what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about when your attention is immersed in simultaneously with time, that there is a period of no thought. You are not thinking. The critical mind is set aside. The, the reasoning and the intellectual mind is set aside. And you are merging in time. So often, you know, you could describe it, this would be flow state. And this is, everybody will harness this state from time to time. A person who is, for example, immersed in a, a piece of work that they love to do, they're so engrossed in their work that time flies. It's effortless and they can produce good quality. But compare that to somebody else and they're distracted by mobile phones, by emails, they're going onto websites, they're scrolling through all of this nonsense and useless information. 
and we can only handle so much information. So, you know, one of the things that helped me a lot 25 years ago was, you know, reducing the amount of information overload. And that's probably why I'm as boring as hell. I've been able to focus on breathing and I've been able to focus on topics around that and ask me about anything else. I typically don't have a clue. Don't get me to do a general knowledge quiz because I will be one of the worst in the room. <laughs> I think there's some interesting, really interesting stuff there, Patrick. And, and I've been kind of banging a drum about deep work to anybody who listened for a while since I, I read Cal Newport's book on the subject. Um, mm-hmm. And that was very much around carving out these, these spaces or this time or this environment where you're going to go and do work of real value um and i've i've experienced it and and felt it and, and i know that when i do my best work is when i remove those distractions from my from my environment whether that's turning off notifications shutting down email going to a space or a place where i feel creative and inspired i'd be really interested to kind of to get a little bit more of from that on you mm-hmm. because i think getting into that flow state for focus to do that deep work what are the sort you've, you've obviously talked about going out to do a presentation is there anything that you would do differently from a breathing perspective to try and really transition into it and and I think my, my second follow-up to that part of it is in that deep work kind of conversation, it talks about the difficulty of the brain's ability, the brain to be able to shift from one subject to another one and then get back into that deep work state, that, that time lag of, I think I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's it's a lot longer than you think. You can't go focus on one thing and then immediately switch into the deep state. 23 Yeah, I was going to say about half an hour. Um, what if we get interrupted and we're in a flow state because if something needs our attention, what can we do to try and sustain and maintain that um, from, from a breathing perspective? I suppose, Tim, because my daily work can, I can have different podcasts and there's many emails. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed with emails. In terms of writing the book, I get up very early. And my normal routine at the moment is to start at about 6.30. So this morning I started at 6.30. And by nine o'clock comes, I have two and a half hours of work done. And that's work that's no interruptions. And the, the one thing, there's, a, there's something great about getting up in the morning. You just feel that it's your time, that nobody has the right to bother you because you're not yet hitting nine o'clock. And even though I work for myself, there, there's something different between the hours just before nine o'clock. The Oxygen Advantage book was written between the hours of four o'clock in the morning and nine o'clock in the morning. So that's typically what I do. And sometimes, you know, you can have long hours. And that's where I have to do, I take down time. Now, during sleep, I have my mouth closed every night. Uh, Between the hours of normally between, say, 12 o'clock and 2 o'clock, I get in an hour of physical exercise. Sometimes I'll read, which probably I shouldn't be doing, but it's on a treadmill. But at least I'm getting physical exercise and I'm slowing down my breathing and I'm bringing breathing practices into my way of life that way. So I kind of structure my my life that I can focus on when I want to focus. I don't listen to the news. Um, I I don't make a conscious effort of checking anything about COVID or anything like that. Um, I, you know, in terms of being just, I suppose, being more aware, you know, we really need to be more aware and more in tune about where where, where we're placing our time. And... After a certain time at night, I switch off phones pretty much. I'm not scrolling continuously. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's about having downtime throughout the day. And we have to come back to that. There's a couple of things about performance. You know, if you were to look at introverts and extroverts, and introverts are normally, they don't carry all that much um, exposure in the Western world that the person who gets rewarded is often the extrovert, the extrovert who's able to shout from the rooftop, who's running in and out of the boss, who's telling the boss how great they are. And the introvert is normally sitting in the corner doing their work and not necessarily telling everybody about what they're doing, but the introvert is more drawn inwards and is a deeper thinker and they step back. They're not as much of a risk taker. Introverts, it's very important to highlight the importance of introverts in this world because extroverts are often too much rewarded. And anybody in the corporate world, you'll know of the individuals running in and out of the boss's office. You'll know these guys. And they're all about the persona. And politicians, for example, are extroverts. You know, so high-risk takers, people in finance, the people who get rewarded in finance are often extroverts. But the problem then is that they don't think before they, they action. So they jump into risk. So we need the, ex, the introvert to step back again. 
So different. And it's not that somebody is an introvert or an extrovert. I'm an introvert, but then I do public speaking. But then after public speaking, I hide. So I want to have my own downtime. So I suppose it's about knowing a little bit about your own self. And this comes with experience as well. Multitasking is a myth. You cannot multitask. And, you know, if you're driving a car, and even yesterday or the day before I was driving a car, and I had to send a text to somebody, you can't do it. It's impossible. You know, you could be driving a car, and even though it's illegal to send a text message on your phone, um, you could be sending a text, and I'm sure everybody has tried it, and you'll find that you're nearly up on top of the car in front before you know it. Because when you're sending the text message, your attention is on sending the text message, and you've moved your attention away from driving the car. So multitasking, we can only hold our attention on one thing at a time. And if there's 10 different things going on, what we're doing is we're moving our attention from one thing to another to another, but we're not giving any of those tasks full focus. So there is a time in the day, shut off all meetings. What a waste of time. You know, we have a small support staff. We have 11 people, no meetings. We might have the odd call every now and again. Meetings are what, you know, and even working now, everybody is working remotely and we can still get on. We can still exchange emails if we have to. So I think it's about cutting out the distractions and probably where it starts off with is cutting out the distractions in the mind. Because when we think of focus, focus is narrowing your attention on that one thing. And we have to consider what are the distractions. Open plan offices could be a distraction. Um, employees that can't stop talking are a distraction. Mobile phones, uh, alerts, emails. And every time we're distracted, as you say, we can't bring our attention back to the job at hand. And of course, probably the biggest distraction is the distraction of the mind, when the mind is all over the place. That we have developed the capacity to think, that education has taught us how to think, but we have not developed the capacity to stop thinking. We haven't been able to hone our attention on what we want to hone it upon because the mind is all over the place. However, the good news is the mind can be trained. And that's known since the last maybe 10, 15 years with neuroplasticity, that whatever behavior we do over a period of time, it changes the brain and it changes the brain to form new habits. And if I was asked the question, what, what would you weigh more importance on? A university master degree or the ability to hone your attention on doing what you're doing? I would say it's the ability to hone my attention on doing what I'm doing for creativity, for intuition, for calmness of the mind, for resilience, and for being able to handle stress. Life is softer and life is better when you have some control over your mind. I love all of that. Um, it's something that I've, I've sort of been very much sort of in tune with and battling myself because you feel like you say, you mentioned a point about society's got us working a certain way and you feel like you've got to be present on different platforms and, and contributing content to be relevant and that actually is completely destructive towards creating the space that it requires to do that that work of quality and to, and to get that focus um I, I, totally. i'm looking forward to what you're going to produce on that for sure and i actually have one question you talked about concentration thinking um i'm reading adam grant's think again book at the moment which i'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying but it's there's one thing i was you've obviously been in, the, in this um in the industry and talking around breathing and and, and everything that you're that you're is around your narrative for, for quite some time what have you, you changed your mind on? What, where are the areas where you've had to rethink something that you used to think was true that have had, you've had to, to, um, to sort of adjust your perspective on? Because I, th I think that's also a really part, important part of focus. If you're running at a million miles all the time, we don't spend the time required to actually think about what we do know and then potentially rethink it to then create new ideas, new perspectives, which we think in light of new evidence could be the right way forward. Is there anything that stands out to you throughout your career that, that's challenged you in that way? Well, I suppose I remember going into university. I got into a university in Dublin, Trinity College, and it took quite a bit of work academically to get into it. And I was setting goals for myself because I was driven. And I would start off in first year, and my goal was to get out in, in four years' time with a degree. But my whole thinking back then was that I was placing all of my attention on reaching that goal. And I wasn't placing my attention on the process. 
And I remember afterwards I got my degree and I didn't, didn't feel overly satisfying after all the work because of the stress that had probably put myself through. And then I went into the corporate world and monthly targets were set or weekly targets were set and we were having meetings and I had a small team of people under me. And, you know, as a young 20-year-old, you have your company car and you're on decent enough salary for your age and responsibility. I absolutely hated it. I hated the stress of it. I hated going in of a Monday morning. And I said to myself, it's not worth making money if I'm going to be stressed out. So my whole priority at at certain point was that I've I've you know I this stress is not just just not worth it, and my background was economics. So a lot of my peers had gone into the big banks and they did gone into insurance and gone into accountancy and all of these different occupations, and back then you'd be envious of them. Twenty five years later, it's a totally different ball game because I was lucky enough to find out a skill or something that suited me very well and I read it from a newspaper article initially and it was about the importance of breathing through the nose and breathing light and at at that time I was doing neither of those things I would have been highly strung a mouth breather poor sleep and I'd undiagnosed sleep apnea so concentration and all that I was there poor concentration but it was a couple of years later, I was driving from Galway to Dublin. So that's one side. It's not very wide. It's only about two hours. Back then, it was three hours. And a thought came in that I wanted to teach breathing. And it felt really good. And I followed that path. And I left the corporate world. And I gave up the company car. And I started off with a budget of €5,000. That's all I had. And that was to pay for my training. So on March 17th in 2002, I started my full-time occupation in breathing. It was the best move ever, but that was based not on logic or reason, but that was based on gut feeling. So it's very important that we learn to trust our gut. And the other thing that comes back with that, Tim, is that I came across breathing in 1997, 98, but I also came across stilling the mind and quietening the mind around that time also. One of the biggest mistakes with meditation is that the very group who need it the most will find it the most challenging. If you have people with anxiety and people with panic disorder and people with depression and people with burnout, if the mind is racing, it's very difficult to focus your attention on your breathing and the likelihood of falling off the bandwagon is high. We need to improve sleep and we need to improve functional breathing and we need to calm the central nervous system and then we need to meditate. So it's all wrong out there. And people's, and for years I've been saying how breathing has been taught could do with improvements. And yes, some people have said to me, well, they couldn't have all got it wrong. And it says, for some reason they have. And I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying most of them. And people might say and challenge me on that. Well, let's say, put it into practice. You know, can you decongest your nose holding your breath? Are you able to do that? Are you able to reduce the volume of air that you breathe and experience your hands getting warmer? Can you improve blood flow to the brain when you want to in terms of increasing your concentration? Can you downregulate before sleep that you're going to activate the body's parasympathetic response in three to four minutes? How are you able to deal with stress? How is your coping ability? So coming back to the hierarchy of bringing a calm mind and a focused and attentive mind, If we were to compare it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the triangle that many people will be familiar with, there's a hierarchy of concentration. And the bottom tier of that is deep sleep. Because if you don't have deep sleep, you're not going to have any of the others. And the second tier is functional breathing patterns. And I mean by breathing light from a biochemical point of view to increase blood flow to the brain, breathing low from a biomechanical point of view, because of the the connection between the diaphragm and the emotions, and breathing slow to a respiratory rate at different times during the day, between 4.5 to 6.5 breaths per minute, to stimulate the vagus nerve and strengthen the baroreceptors, but to influence the autonomic nervous system. So we start off with deep sleep quality, and nasal breathing is the key there. We should never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. And then to improve functional breathing patterns and bring it into our everyday life. 
And it's not just that breathing is practiced in a studio, but how are you breathing when you walk down the street? How are you breathing when you're driving your car? How are you breathing when you feel stressed? Improve your functional everyday breathing patterns. And then move on to the next tier, which might be breath awareness, following your breath. And the next tier might be body awareness, bringing your attention into the body, that you're not just stuck in your head. And the next tier might be mind awareness, bringing your attention into the present moment and being aware of the thoughts that are going on in the head. At the moment, when we look at concentration and focus, the emphasis typically is on avoiding distractions. And in terms of training, the mind is to focus on meditation. But I've seen it before, 2010 to 2013, I had 3,000 people who come into me doing small classes on mindfulness, which is wonderful, by the way. This is not a criticism of mindfulness, but it's a realization and a recognition that mindfulness was developed 2,000 years ago. Life was different then. Many people are exposed to chronic stresses now that they weren't exposed to back then. Many people are predisposed to dysfunctional breathing patterns. For example, 75% of the anxiety population in the literature, 75% have breathing pattern disorders. And that breathing pattern disorder is physiologically keeping them in a state of fight or flight. How can you have a calmness of the mind and concentration and focus unless you're in a state of balance? So that's where we need to go with concentration and focus. It's not about meditation. Meditation is far down the list. Let's get sleep quality right first. Let's get functional breathing right first. And then let's start focusing on the breath. You said, um, you said something really interesting that like links some of that stuff together that um, you know, Tim's been talking about. And you, you mentioned that, about, like, that we've got choice to, to turn some of those distractions, and those things off. that's going to help us to be able to focus and not... Um, uh, not be jumping from one sort of task or thing to another. Um, Mrs. Jacko is well known for having um, an Internet Explorer up with uh, 35 different tabs across the top. <laughs> but it's not for me. I'll, I'll tell her. Patrick says you need to reduce some of these, reduce some of these tabs um, to concentrate. But the, there's a when you when you mentioned there about a decision that you made when you changed your careers, you talked about gut feeling and intuition, or that those two things being sort of a similar thing that you it's going to be very difficult for us to be in tune with and be able to hear and listen to our intuition and if anyone hasn't sort of looked at intuition like it's a thing that's been studied and it's like a thing that's been proven it sounds a bit weird but there there is like a uh, the brain guy we had on scott robinson on the podcast um well, a few months ago he he touched on that so do have a listen back to that one if you haven't but that intuition it's a it's a real thing but if you are if your mind is racing and you're not able to calm your mind and you're always constantly distracted and multitasking you're never going to be able to listen to actually hear what that is so yeah totally on board with that idea or that principle that you can actually choose to reduce some of these distractions and then use your breathing as a tool to be able to help you calm yourself and be a bit more present and be a bit more mindful so that then you can live the real world and also be able to listen to to your own intuition rather than just being like pulled along every day by the world uh, take some control back yourself i think is is a is a message that i'm hearing there um yes yeah yeah i would agree jacko and you know i suppose maybe people sometimes will feel well it doesn't affect them and this is where a little bit of awareness and, you know, what, what does the word awareness mean? But simply that you're just paying attention to maybe what's going on in your head. And if you start noticing that you're thinking the same old thoughts day in, day out all the time, and these thoughts are making you feel lousy, these thoughts are not being productive. You know, that's part of, of course, mindfulness or, being, or meditation. And I don't, I also think it would be beneficial to move away from the words but even just to become aware of what's going on in the head. But I would still come back to deep sleep. I really, really feel that this is where it's at because we know it ourselves. If we have a poor night's sleep, we wake up in the morning and it's almost as if we have a hangover. And sleep disorder breathing is very, very mm -hmm. common. It, you know, we talked about rugby there. It's really high in rugby. And when we think of young rugby players who are passing on as a result of cardiac issues 
in their 40s and 50s, we have to start investigating why. And is this due to an increased risk of sleep apnea because they're bigger guys with a larger neck circumference, their airway is compromised, and as a result, they're stressing their heart during sleep. And then they do physical exercise, they're stressing their heart during the day. But that same sleep apnea is going to impact their focus and performance and their mood. And that's, I suppose, the realism that, you know, we wake up feeling lousy in the morning. I don't think intuition is going to kick in because we're all over the shop. Well, you, and that's where the deep sleep and the functional breathing come in. But people, I suppose, you know, in a way, it was good that I hated my job. Absolutely hated it because it gave me the drive to want to do something about yeah, it. Yeah. And many people are kind of content. Well, they're not really content. I looked at the Gallup survey and 85% of people in the workplace are not happy. Now, that, that is some statistic, especially when we're spending 35 to 40 hours a week in that situation. Yeah. There's, there was another you some tying in something you said earlier into that with the in that sort of uh poor sleep rugby scenario and, and we're seeing some you like you say some 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 tragic things happening later in life for people mm. um you know both yes. myself and tim both played um rugby um and, and something that, that else is happening is those concussive events that that, that we get as a uh, as a rugby player um that don't have to be um they can be fairly innocuous but the build-up of them but um you mentioned about breath hold when you talked about breath holding before about uh, increasing blood flow uh, and oxygen to yes. the brain. Uh, it's actually helpful. It, it, it's helpful for for that. Um, and then equally, I'm, I'm making maybe a, a small assumption that the that those poor breathing patterns are obviously like um, if you've if you've had played a contact sport where you get knocked about a bit, those poor breathing patterns are, are gonna. Uh, affect the quality or the amount and efficiency of, of oxygen you get into your brains. There's probably like a few knock-on things there. One thing I did want to ask about sleep was because uh, people that listen to the first podcast, quite a few of the listeners, and, and any time sort of mentioning the, the oxygen advantage, something that always crops up is people, um, and it pricked my ears up when I first read it. Um, in that first, in the first book, was the taping the mouth at night, and something that gets asked uh, has been asked quite regularly is like. Okay, uh, when someone they get on board, we get on board with like taping the mouth at night, and then I've had a few people ask this question. It's like, so is that me then for the rest of my life? Have I got to take my mouth away? Or after a certain period of time, is it have I trained myself and I've got those habits that my mouth is going to stay closed? I'm going to nasal breathe. I'm going to have a good restful night's sleep. Like, can I stop taping my mouth? Where where do you sit on where do you sit on that? What's the advice for people on that one? It's just a, a common one. Yeah, that gets I suppose. Asked. If, you, if you've been taping your mouth for a couple of months, typically, if you've been a mouth breather and 50% of the adult population breathe through their mouth during sleep and individuals over 40 years of age are six times more likely to have their mouth open during sleep as not. And in a paper published in Larger Scope, um, looking at mouth breathing and obstructive sleep apnea, 95 individuals only 35 out of the 95 were nasal breathers. The rest of them were solely mouth breathers or switching from mouth to nose breathing. And the AHI with the mouth breathing group was 52 events per hour, 52 interruptions they had per hour, almost Thank one you. every minute, yeah. that they either stopped breathing for more than 10 seconds or they had a reduction in the flow of their breathing for more than 10 seconds. The group that was switching from mouth to nose breathing, I think it was 47 events per hour. And the group that were, was breathing nose solely was 27 events per hour. So it was even high with nose breathing alone, but it was almost half that of the mouth breathing group. So we need to get the mouth closed and the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. Have the tape on for about 60 to 70 days because that's how long it takes to change a habit. And, you know, you might even try it for two weeks, say. And then you say to yourself, well, tonight I'm going to go to bed without wearing tape on my mouth. And if you wake up with a moist mouth in the morning, you don't need tape. But if you go to bed without the tape on and you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning, you need to tape the next night. So that's the best way. Trial and error. Yeah. Some, some people will adapt to it easier than others. Do you still tape yours? I do. I do, yes. Which you say, have you been, doing, been doing it for 25 years. years, 30 years. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> And it's kind of weird because as soon as you put the tape on, it's almost that it's a trigger. 
and I fall asleep quick. So yeah. I don't know what's going on. What did your wife there. say? It's just something. So going I'm on. assuming you oh, married. She doesn't mind. I've been. I even used it on my my wedding night, <laughs> so it doesn't make any difference to her. <laughs> And you know what? When you're nearly fifty anyway, and you're well well married, things like that don't bother anybody. <laughs> does she tape her mouth? I... Sometimes, yeah. She wouldn't be the most compliant, but she does from time to time. I'm imagining she must be a fantastic breather, but that's just uh, she, if she's anything like my wife, she well, won't listen to you. So you just sort of <laughs> yeah. teaching family is not always the easiest. Yes, I can imagine. Try it even with your own ch- children as well. I had a question Patrick wants to ask you. I, know you, I really appreciate how you've kind of said, go through these, the, the different sort of hierarchy of, of, of level of importance of building these things up. But I wanted to kind of just ask you something which might make it really stand out for um, for our community, who, who a lot of people have come to us and listened to us for sort of bodyweight training and calisthenics. And obviously shoulder is a big um, component of what we do and what we train and, and part of our movements. Can you just give us a bit of a breakdown to, to, to really sort of, if people are still sort of thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm, this could be for me or not i just think that sometimes that finding a different sort of uh, connection to it could help how could poor breathing potentially inhibit shoulder range of motion and and shoulder mechanics and then pr- affect people's training because obviously the effect of the rib cage and the, and the motion of the, or the scapular rhythm around that is, is going to be a big uh, massive influence over how we're breathing and and then therefore have a knock on our performance in our training yeah i suppose we need mobility of range and when it comes to functional breathing, it's very much the emphasis should be placed on optimal movement of the diaphragm. So the diaphragm breathing muscle is the main breathing muscle. It separates the, the chest from the abdomen. And when we take a breath of air into the lungs, the diaphragm is moving downwards. And as the diaphragm moves downwards, it's generating intra-abdominal pressure. So you can imagine a weightlifter that's lifting a weight. Oftentimes, they'll kind of naturally and instinctively they'll breathe in and hold their breath as they are lifting the weight. And as they're breathing in, the diaphragm is moving downwards and the abdomen becomes like a pneumatic balloon. And this helps to provide stabilization for the spine. So functional breathing, where it comes to functional movement, is related to what's called the zone of apposition. And the zone of apposition is the distance from the top of the diaphragm after a normal exhalation down to the lower two ribs. And that in turn influences what's called the the intra-abdominal pressure. And I suppose a simple way, Tim, is if you breathe through your nose, you've got a greater recruitment of the diaphragm. And if you breathe through the mouth, you've got greater recruitment of the chest. But chest breathing is inefficient and it's uneconomical. So one way to gauge the generation of intra-abdominal pressure is to have your hands either side of the lower two ribs. And as you breathe in, the ribs should be moving outwards. And as you breathe out, the ribs should be gently moving inwards. So during rest, we should have about 80% of the movement driven by the diaphragm and 20% driven by the upper chest. Now, in terms of an athlete, there are groups of individuals who are more predisposed to breathing pattern disorders. Most certainly the anxiety population or people with racing mind or people even with perfectionist tendencies because people with perfectionist tendencies often place high demands on themselves and that can change breathing patterns. And that's been known for a number of decades. Another group then would be people with asthma or people with childhood asthma or people who are prone to respiratory chest issues. Or say, for example, somebody goes off for a long cycle and they come back and they have cyclist cough or something like that. So they can be quite prone to it. And then I suppose lifestyle. If you have somebody who's talking all day long, that doesn't help breathing patterns. And how would it affect that individual? I suppose a, a simple way to measure it would be using what's called the BOLT score or the BOLT. It's the body oxygen level test and it's a simple breath hold time. So say, for example, anybody who thinks or they want to monitor their breathing, sit down for about three or four minutes, allow your breathing to settle, get a timer, then take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold your breath and time how long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles. And when you let go, your breath should be fairly normal. An ideal breath hold time would be 40 seconds, but most people don't achieve that. But the cutoff point is 25 seconds. Now, bear in mind that this is not the length of maximum breath hold time. This is only the length of breath hold time during rest after an exhalation until you feel the first definite desire to breathe and your breathing at the end of that test should be normal. Professor Kyle Kiesel, 
did a study of this back in 2018. So he's a professor of physical therapy. And he was looking at the relationship between physical movement and breathing. And he wanted to d design or to investigate a simple screening protocol for healthcare professionals and fitness professionals. And he concluded that the breath hold time that I described, he didn't call it bolt score, it's the control pause also from the Buteco method, that if it's over 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. So again, we want to have the bolt score above 25 seconds because that indicates that functional breathing is present. And if somebody has a bowl score of 10 or 11 seconds or 15 seconds or 16 seconds, it can, it can show a number of things. Number one is that the person is more likely to be breathing faster. So they have a faster respiratory rate than normal. And an ideal respiratory rate during rest will be between say 10 and 12 or 10 and 14 breaths per minute. But we shouldn't be breathing over 14 breaths per minute. And we certainly shouldn't be breathing over 16 breaths per minute. But it's not just the respiratory rate. It's also whether the person is breathing in the upper chest or are they breathing low. So people with a low bolt score tend to breathe faster. They tend to breathe more in the upper chest and they tend to have irregular breathing patterns. And irregular breathing patterns are a recipe for, for anxiety and for panic. But people who are breathing faster in upper chest during rest, they are more likely to gas out too soon during physical exercise. So if you were to talk to strength and conditioning coaches, ask them, do they know of a couple of players that no matter how hard they train, the players are plateauing? And oftentimes the strength and conditioning coach would put this down to lack of condition. But we have to bear in mind these players are training the same as everybody else. So why do some players don't excel the same with the same level of training? We have to be looking at their everyday breathing patterns. And, you know, it's your everyday breathing patterns going into the detail of how is that player's breathing when they're asleep? How are they breathing during the warm up? How are they breathing during moderate and low intensity exercise? How are they breathing during rest? And it's simply about optimizing their existing breathing because it's your breathing during your everyday that determines your breathing during sports performance. If you have breathing that's suboptimal during your everyday, well, it's not going to be good during sports. And as a result, dysfunctional breathing is going to feed into dysfunctional movement, and you're also increasing the risk of injury. And as well, Tim, you can go even one step further. So that, that's what I'm talking about, functional breathing. The other pillar that we're looking at is how to do stressor exercises to stress the body to make adaptations. And here we do breath holding. And there was an interesting study using breath holds with professional, highly trained rugby union players in Australia. They got 21 players, divided them into two groups, and one group did sprinting with breath holding, and the other group did sprinting with normal breathing. And they measured their repeated sprintability after four weeks of training. And the group who did their sprinting with breath holding increased repeated sprintability from nine reps to 14.8 before exhaustion. And the group who did sprinting with normal breathing, they increased their repeated sprintability from nine to 10 reps. Now, to get that gain in highly trained rugby union players within four weeks, just from a few minutes of practice every day, so doing a couple of sets of five reps or six reps of breath hold sprints and bringing that into your existing training regime. So I suppose, yeah, there's a, it's, you know, coming back to your question, but looking at the functional movement screen, and I know that people are critical of it, that it mightn't be perfect, but use any functional movement screen that you're using. And you'll find that the vast majority of people who pass those tests are diaphragmatic breeders. Yeah, it's great. Thank you for that. It's uh, really interesting. And I say it's um, to, to hear the results and the evidence behind what happens, it's, it's, um, it, it, it makes an exceptionally good case for S&C coaches. And, and particularly from my experience, having been one and then also knowing a lot of them, breathing's not high enough up the agenda on what mm -hmm. we're doing with our athletes. So it's, uh, it's definitely a conversation we need to have. I would agree. And I can't, you know, it's, it's really strange why it hasn't been embraced because it's the one function of the human body that can limit performance. And, you know, from so many different points of view, you can do breathing exercises to improve both aerobic and anaerobic performance. And even just looking at the anaerobic shuttle test, and I know we had a good conversation with Jacko on this, 
you know, athletes who are doing sprinting to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis in order to delay lactic acid and fatigue and increasing their risk of injury due to the trauma of the sprint. And, you know, if you, if you were to measure blood oxygen saturation during a sprint with mouth breathing, the blood oxygen saturation will drop down to about 93%. And with nasal breathing, it will drop down to about 91%. But I could get somebody jogging in their kitchen using breath tolling and drop their blood oxygen saturation down into the mid-80s, that we can create severe hypoxia. We can increase carbon dioxide in the blood. We can disturb the blood acid-base balance, and we can increase the buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartments with simple breath hold exercises during jogging. You could do it in your kitchen, and it has no trauma. So I think strength and conditioning coaches need to be more creative. And sports medicine scientists in the universities, only a couple have started now investigating this, and the research has started to come out in the last five years even looking at nasal breathing during physical exercises versus mouth breathing. Uh, one, one researcher, Wurans from France, has done a lot of papers on breath tolling and the adaptations there that can take place. And it just makes sense, you know. So, yeah, I think the players who start looking at, at breathing, you know, we should be thinking of athletes and sports people as innovators. Now, at the moment, I've seen more interest from the military, but maybe that's normal. Because when we think of the greatest technological advances, they typically didn't come from civilian life. Many of them came from the military, including the internet. Yeah, and uh, just uh, just to sort of wrap up the sort of that conversation on um, uh, just a little highlight that Tim made around the shoulder um, for those that are training a little bit more upper body calisthenics-based stuff. That upper chest breathing that you're talking about. We're using those muscles like scalenes, like the traps, like pecs to, to facilitate that breathing of the upper chest. And that's not what those things are designed to do. And that's going to that's gonna affect our ribcage position. That's going to affect our scapular position. That's going to affect how it moves and ultimately going to affect on, yeah, the mobility. But I'm seeing even for stuff on myself of going, my, I'm feeling like my scapula feels more stable when I'm making sure that I'm breathing with that nice diaphragmatic breath that you were discussing talking about. I'm feeling a more stable scapula. I'm feeling I'm actually then because of that, like increase in st- or a sense of stability, I'm feeling a bit stronger, like in some of those like over overhead sort of pressing type of, of movements. So, and it, and it, yeah, it, it makes sense to me. And I think that that's, um, that hopefully, uh, I think Tim would agree for people listening. If they're, if they think that they're breathing quite poorly and the caveat or the, the little carrot for them, to do something about it is that it, it, it might have quite a profound effect on your shoulder range and, and, and the stability and strength of, of what you're doing at the shoulder in your training. Yeah, it, I would be in no doubt. I haven't personally looked enough into the whole upper, upper chest. Most of the focus has been on in terms of functional movement, etc. Um, but there's one way of finding out Jacko, and that's by putting simple breathing techniques into practice. And, you know, coming back to Tim's question earlier on, you know, how would you know if you are prone to to breathing pattern disorders? Well, do you notice that your breathing is a little bit faster in upper chest during rest? Is there no natural pause after exhalation during rest? There should be. Do you have irregular breathing patterns? Do you just find that you have disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise? Is your breathing fast and heavy during sleep? You know, and if, even if you have a racing mind and if you're prone to anxiety, it's very, very normal that when we are prone to or exposed to long-term stress that our breathing patterns change. But when our breathing patterns change, it feeds back into long-term stress. So for people even just to become more aware of their breathing and then look at what happens then when you switch to nose breathing, when you're breathing light, slow and deep, and to think of the acronym LSD. And just by practicing that, and you typically will see results pretty quickly. Mm. And even if you do your physical exercise with your mouth closed, at the start, it's more difficult because there's a greater resistance to breathing. You feel increased air hunger. But if you continue doing your physical exercise with your mouth closed for six to eight weeks, the air hunger diminishes. But now your body is being adopted to cope better with increased carbon dioxide in the blood. And it's the accumulation of carbon dioxide that drives your breathing. So when we breathe during physical exercise, it's driven 
mainly by carbon dioxide, not by oxygen. But if we're overly sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide, our breathing is hard and fast. And there's an energy cost associated with that as well. So if we have dysfunctional breathing patterns, we're wasting energy more unnecessarily. And we may be prone to diaphragmatic muscle fatigue. And if the diaphragm breathing muscle fatigues, then blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. So I suppose there's a number of different kind of offshoots to it. And yeah, it is, it's an awareness initially and just observation of the breath and just asking your questions, measure your both score and start from there. Great, Patrick. Thanks for that. Just I've um, since we last had you on the podcast, um, I'm not much of a runner, but I do enjoy 5K, and I'm now doing all of my 5K runs, um, nasal breathing only. And um, yeah, the, the, as you say, the first few weeks were were, were a challenge, um, especially when it was relatively it was during the winter, I think, as well, and my nostrils were sticking together because I was trying to suck in so much air. Yes. <laughs> and Jacka gave me the tip of making my mouth like a. I was thinking that like the comic turtle <laughs> with no teeth, like rounding the lips off. Um, but now it feels great. And, I, and I, the interesting thing, I think, from a performance perspective is if I properly wanted to open the taps and was like, right, PB time and was allowed myself to then mouth breathe, I know that I've now 100% feel like I've got this extra gear that I could go to should I I, I want to do it. So it's um, yes. yeah, it's been it's a really good experiment. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it can be helpful. Like it, it, it depends. There's a number of things that influence air hunger during physical exercise. One is fitness levels, of course. The other is bolt score. So people with a low bolt score will have increased air hunger during exercise. And the other is nose size. So if you have somebody with a deviated septum or, and it's very, very common. So what I'd suggest is if you need to get a nasal dilator, that's a plastic device that gently opens up the nose to make breathing easier. That can be helpful. And um, yeah, it's just about persisting with it. And just be careful that if you do go for a run, that you're not forcing air in and out of the nose because it can really irritate the inside of the nose. So we're a little bit better off, I suppose, if we're recreational athletes, slowing down the pace for a few weeks and using the nose as a determinant of your exercise intensity. But if you're a competitive athlete, only devote about 50% of your training to nasal breathing. There is a time that you have to mouth breathe. So use nose breathing as a means of adding an extra load onto your, your breathing. And then there's a time to mouth breathe. You know, and that way then, for example, you won't feel that bringing breathing exercises is going to disrupt your routine because we don't want that. We want you to be able to bring breathing exercises into your existing routine that you can still perform the way you're doing it. But there's times that we can bring in breathing exercises to add an extra load to get those benefits. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Patrick, for, for coming on again. And um, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's um, the, the breadth of it and, and hearing you and you speak about the wider areas that you're now going to kind of start to, to, to share with us your, your thoughts on that particular kind of focus and concentration, mm. I think is fantastic. And I think it's so, so relevant and so needed that we need to get this message out there because I, I personally have, am trying to break away from feeling trapped in that cycle of, of content overconsumption and not allow my brain to still down so there's 100% think there'll be a lot of people that resonate with what you shared today so thank you for that great thanks very much Tim it should be something that should be taught in schools you know the education mm. of the, the future is teaching children to be better able to cope with life Yeah. so there, you know there's really important topics there that should be taught as part of the education system uh, Patrick if people want to find out a bit more about you or if they're interested in uh, the new book The Breathing Cure where where's the best place for them to go um, and we can put some links in the show notes for that yeah it, it will be up on Amazon it was only released a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago um, it's currently available on oxygenadvantage.com and it's a it's a big enough book but it's, it's quite detailed it's, it's, it's $25 it's more like a yoga block it's a <laughs> <laughs> just a uh, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to make breathing more serious by including the signs. Mm. And I didn't want to have it too kind of, I, I, need, I didn't want to have it too jargony. But at the same time, I just wanted to show people, listen, this is not opinion based. Mm. This is, you know, there's evidence in support of this. And we really need to start highlight, highlighting what we can do in terms of the breath. Now, the book on focus and concentration will be the opposite. It's going to be very, very simple okay. language. It's going to be very image-led, and it's only about 25,000 words. Right. So, because I have to aim it to an audience of a person with a racing mind. So, I'm thinking <laughs> back to the day when my mind was there. 
you know, if somebody handed me a, a 600 page book and I have a racing mind, I know where that book will be going. So it won't have so, the 70 pages of references that the uh, Breathing Cure has to prove it. No, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. The, the work yeah, out yeah, references. Said, anyway, if I see a big chunk of references in the back of a book, I'm like, oh, that's a page I don't need to read. <laughs> yeah. so it makes the book short. But you're like, but you're like okay, uh, but then I can trust what, what what's being written. I want to yeah, see, see them, yeah, but, but just give me that trust. Yeah, no, good, <laughs> like it. Yeah, it's, it's 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 always that balance, you know. So, yeah, the website is oxygenadvantage.com, yeah. and um, the Instagram as well. We're on Instagram, we're on YouTube, so you'll find different things there as well. Same name, Oxygen Advantage. Great stuff. We will put links in the show notes, uh, people. If you haven't um, checked. Uh, Patrick out on uh, on social media or on YouTube or read one of his his many books. Then we do recommend getting involved in that, but just not over consumption. Just doing it when you've got the right time and space to and headspace to do it. So keep it on board with that with that message. Fantastic! I think that's probably it until next time. So thank you, Patrick, and we'll we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Great guys, pleasure. Thanks very much. Good to speak to you, mate. Bye. There we have it, Patrick McKeown on the Movement, Strength and Play podcast, talking breathing, talking focus, talking attention, talking all the things that are going to help us live uh, ultimately a better, healthier and happier life. And uh, I, for one, am on board with, uh, well, I, was already, I, I was already on board. And if I'm honest, I'm still trying to chew my way through. I haven't read the Breathing Cure cover to cover yet, so I'm still chewing my way through it. It is an absolute beast. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes if you haven't. Um, had, uh, haven't got any of his books available on Amazon put the links in the show notes so you can check them out um, and also if you did, if, you listened, if you really enjoyed it and you haven't listened to the, the first podcast we've done with him, we also had the podcast live so we've had some engagements on the podcast with him in the past so do check those out and if you're thinking what you do next at this podcast before you go and check out more of Patrick's work you can just swing by your favourite listening, listening platform and give us a little review it's really useful for getting the word out there the quality of the guests that we try to get on and the information that they provide with their expertise so if you can give us four or five stars those are your options really ignore everything else lower than that we would massively appreciate it and the little comments you give us they really just give us a nice little warm fuzzy feeling so if you enjoy listening to me and Jack and you want to tell us then that's a great place to do it yeah, because when when I, when we contacted uh, Patrick and said, "Oh, do you fancy coming on the podcast?" He was like, uh, "Yeah, I'd love to." Could just uh, how many five star uh, reviews have we got on iTunes? And when I told him how many we had, he was happy to come on. So it, <laughs> it's part and parcel of that. So, so, just so what you're saying is, if people you know, are more high quality guests, the more high quality reviews we get, it's a directly yeah. proportional or relational or uh, based. I think the word extrapolates out. So there is a correlation, cause and effect. Word. Yeah, thanks for yeah. helping me there. Never been one for statistics. <laughs> right, let's wrap it up. We're going to see you again next week. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast today. Until next time. Keep exploring your movement. No, keep exploring your physical potential <laughs> through movement, strength and play on the Scorecard Zones podcast. It's actually now called the Movement, Strength and Play podcast. We Amen. don't like to get too professional, do we? And take ourselves too seriously. People always say that. So that's one thing that I do get, Jacko, going back to reviews. People often say, I really like it how you don't take yourselves too seriously. Well... Which is code for, <laughs> it's not that professional, but we sort of are happy to support we you. We thought you'd have stopped winging it by now. Right, <laughs> we're going to get off. We'll speak again soon. Class dismissed.